Before we begin, I would like to invite you to just join me in a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us. May we come to know you as who you really are and not as how we falsely perceive you. I pray that anything said by me that is not of you would be forgotten and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, only the truth of your word would remain in our hearts. In your son's precious name, amen. So good morning. Uh, my name is Russell, and I am the curate for Incarnation, and we are in the second Sunday of Lent, a tradition which the church has practiced from its very beginning. Lent calls us to face the reality of our broken relationships with God, creation, other people, and even ourselves. It reminds us of our deep need for salvation and healing, which can only come from God. Lent also reminds us that God chose to enter our brokenness through the person, Jesus Christ. We remember our good God who did not leave the world in its broken state, but chose to draw near and redeem it. Lent is the season of repentance where we choose to respond to God's act of drawing near. And repentance is not a form of spiritual groveling, nor is it a form of spiritual masochism where we dwell on how terrible we are. Rather, repentance is the continuous act of following Jesus and refusing to let anything get in the way. To put it in the words of one of my spiritual mentors from New England, repentance is the act of saying yes to Jesus and saying no to the things that stop your yes. To say yes to God requires belief that God is good and wants what is best for us. This is the ultimate message that the Bible conveys to us, and this is the message that guides our practices in Lent. In this church season, we seek to throw off anything that hinders our life with God and to be free of the sin that so easily entangles us, just as the author of Hebrews notes in chapter 12 of his epistle. The life of repentance is the life of faith. But... As many of us know, saying yes to God is easier said than done. Sometimes we have no clarity on what God is doing in our lives. And if we are really being honest, our experiences of pain and anguish seemingly contradict with what the Bible proclaims about God. And so we begin to wonder, is God really good? Does God really want what's best for the world? Does God really want what's best for me? Is God really worth following? And these questions are not philosophic ponderings or abstract theological musings. These questions are deeply human and are interwoven within our nature. They are deep-seated, real questions that demand deep-seated, real answers. To grapple with these questions is to grapple with the heart of the gospel. And the way we answer these questions will affect how we choose to live. And these are the questions that come to mind when we read the story of Abraham and Isaac. This is a terrifying story, a story which one famous philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, said we must approach with fear and trembling. But as terrifying as this story is, 
we do not have the right to ignore it. This is one of the most crucial stories, not just in the book of Genesis, but within the, within the entire Bible itself. Jewish and Christian interpreters have referred to this story as the Akedah, or the binding in Hebrew. It is a key text and a hinge point in the story of God's redemption of the world. And furthermore, this story shows us what it looks like to have faith, especially in the moments when we cannot see God's goodness. So at this point in the story, Abraham has been following God, waiting for the fulfillment of a divine promise. God had promised a 75-year-old Abraham that he would bless him with offspring, too numerous to count. God promises that through Abraham and his offspring, all the families of the world will be blessed. So Abraham waits for God to fulfill his promise, and he encounters God in fleeting supernatural moments where God reaffirms this promise to Abraham. And in those fleeting divine encounters, he reveals more details of what that promise will look like. God promises Abraham that he will bless him with a son through his wife, Sarah, and that this specific son will be the son of the promise, whose lineage will be a blessing to the world. And after 25 years of waiting, marked by moments of doubt, familial drama, and conflict with surrounding neighbors, the text says that the Lord visits Abraham's wife, Sarah, and blesses them with a son. And Sarah names the boy Isaac, which means laughter, as a sign of her joyful exuberance over this miraculous birth. And the season of dry and fruitless waiting is transformed into a season of joy and supernatural abundance. And God is faithful to keep his promise. But then, years later, Abraham encounters God one more time, an encounter that must have caused Abraham to question God's nature. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now there are a few details in this story's introduction which are important to note. The author of Genesis makes it clear to the reader that God is testing Abraham. As readers, we are given information about the work of God that Abraham did not receive. And this is the same language and concept used in the book of Job when Satan challenged God to test the legitimacy of Job's faith. Secondly, the author refers to Isaac as Abraham's only son, the son whom he loves. But what is interesting about this is that Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. If you look earlier in the story, we see that Abraham had another son named Ishmael through his concubine Hagar, a son whom he cared about and whom he prayed to God on his behalf concerning the promise. But God makes it clear that the promised son is to be the son of Sarah, and that this son, Isaac, would be the heir to the divine promise which will bless the world. So in referring to Isaac as Abraham's only beloved son, the author is highlighting the particular connection that Isaac has to the divine promise. 
Isaac is the promised son whose lineage will carry God's divine blessing. He carries the rights of the firstborn, and he is Abraham's true heir. And in light of this, the passage carries a distinct theological weightiness, and it is this weightiness which carries the deeper meaning of this story. God is asking Abraham not just to sacrifice his son, but to sacrifice the divine promise that accompanies his child. To put it in the words of pastor and theologian Fleming Rutledge, the path set before Abraham is not only one of child sacrifice, unspeakable as that is, it is the road out into God-forsakenness. Abraham is asked to burn up the charter of salvation, leaving for himself nothing but death and hell. And this is what God is asking of Abraham. And this is what the author of Genesis wants us as readers to see. So Abraham obeys. And he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God has told him. And the way that the author portrays this story amplifies its somber weightiness. As the narrative progresses, it becomes increasingly slow and gradual, leading up to that one crucial moment of sacrifice. In the three-day journey to Moriah, the author does not give us any insight into Abraham's internal thought process, nor do we get any glimpse of Abraham's prayer life during this time. Theologians, artists, and writers have sought to Im imaginatively answer that question through a variety of different ways. And while these imaginative interpretations can be helpful to our own engagement with the story, it is vital that we don't say more than what this story already says. And, but the author does provide one brief conversation between Abraham and Isaac. And when they get to the mountain, Abraham and Isaac leave behind the two servants. And while carrying the instruments of sacrifice up the mountain, Isaac turns to Abraham and asks him, my father. And Abraham responds, here I am, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. We don't know what Abraham or Isaac were thinking during this brief exchange. But the details of it certainly highlight the tragic nature of what Abraham is preparing to do. And so the moment finally comes. Abraham builds the altar and lays down the wood. He binds Isaac and places him on the altar, fully intending to do what God had asked him. And then suddenly, God interrupts. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Once again, the author doesn't provide any sense of what Abraham or Isaac were thinking or feeling. 
We can try to imagine, but I don't think we will ever fully grasp the extent of what that reality must have felt like. This, this was a one-time event in Israel's history, and God never asked anyone else to do what Abraham did. But that being said, I don't believe that Abraham's experience of God-forsakenness is unique to him. God may not ask us to sacrifice our children like he did to Abraham, but I do believe that in the life of faith, we may go through seasons of life where we cannot sense the Lord's presence. And if anything, it may appear as if the Lord is somehow working against us. And we see this struggle in the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 88. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood, and they have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor, and darkness is my closest friend. I cannot help but wonder if the psalmist was thinking of Abraham while writing this. The experience of feeling abandoned and forsaken by God is deeply human, and we cannot ignore it or claim to know what God is doing in these moments. And I imagine there are some people in this room who feel like they are walking the road of God-forsakenness, like Abraham or the psalmist. I don't know why God tested Abraham in this way, and I'm not going to use this pulpit to try to explain a mystery that is deep within the heart of God. But while I, can't, but while I cannot explain God's purpose in this scenario, I do believe that the Bible gives us insight into the action of Abraham, particularly in portions of the New Testament. In the Epistle to the Hebrews, the author provides a description of Abraham's action in this way. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that the God who supernaturally revealed himself to Abraham and made a covenant with him would continue to be faithful even if the current situation didn't make any sense. He chose to believe that God would keep his promise concerning Isaac, even if it meant that God would raise Isaac from the dead, which, as the author of Hebrews notes, figuratively speaking, did happen. The life of faith is not a life of certainty. Rather, it is a life which consistently chooses to believe what our psalmist proclaimed this morning in Psalm 16. You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. God is good, and he is worth following. This is what Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And now, according to the Apostle Paul, Abraham is the father of faith, whose covenant is ultimately fulfilled through his promised offspring, Jesus Christ. And as Paul states, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. A promise that God fulfilled to Abraham in a way that Abraham never could have imagined. God kept his promise to Abraham and he still keeps his promises today. God is good and he is worth following. It's just as we heard the Apostle Paul say this morning, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God be for us, then who can be against us? This was the vision of Abraham, and this is the vision of faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would come to a greater understanding of your goodness to us. Thank you for being a God who was willing to be with us, who descended to the depths and traveled the road of God-forsakenness all the way to the cross. And as we continue in this season of Lent, grant us the grace to desire you with our whole heart, that desiring you we may seek you, and that seeking you we may find you, and that finding you we may love you, and that loving you we may hate those sins from which you have delivered us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.